Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Hi, I'm Eleanor. I'm Emily. And I'm Tom. And together we're Space 3D. So welcome to our first official podcast for Space 3D. Just like to introduce uh, co-hosts for this podcast, Emily Carney and Tom Hill. Say hello, everybody. Hey there. Hello, everybody. <laughs> How y'all doing? So I'm Tom, and I couldn't I couldn't make this interview, but I hope to make some others. Besides, most of the questions I'd be asking about Skylab would have to do with uh, deploying solar shields and things like that. So that probably wasn't this person's strength. Well, actually, it probably was. I mean, the the guy that we had the opportunity, um, thanks to Emily's connections, to interview is is a real Skylab aficionado, and I think uh, everyone's going to appreciate official interview that Emily led. Emily, I don't know if you have any comments about how, you know about the interview, and I don't know. I'm I'm a bit of a, a huge Skylab uh, fan myself, and um, we did talk about the medical aspect of Skylab. My conversation with Dwight touched on a lot of the things such as, uh, you know, how Skylab relates to the ISS. Also, we kind of touched on fun things about Skylab that a lot of people are not going to remember. The gentleman we are interviewing, uh, Dwight Stephen Bonecki, is a uh, Skylab expert. There's not many of us, probably maybe three or four of us out there. He's uh, actually done three books about Skylab. He's uh, With Apogee, he's done the uh, mission reports, the Skylab uh two, three, four mission reports. And those are really invaluable if you're interested in knowing a lot of the technical aspects about the missions. There's also a great book uh, by a gentleman named uh, David Hitt, uh, who we did not interview, but still, if you're a Skylab uh, fan, there's a book called Homesteading Space. Uh, David Hitt actually wrote it with uh, two Skylab uh, crew members, uh, Owen Garriott and uh, Joe Kerwin, who has the distinction of being the first medical doctor in space. So um, if you are interested in Skylab, that certainly is an invaluable resource. I would definitely get th- that. All those books are. Dwight talked a lot about some of the fun, you know, aspects of Skylab uh, that a lot of people don't hear about. You know, some of the little stories I think that kind of get hidden because it it happened almost 45 years ago, which is kind of frightening. Uh, my, I'm kind of showing um, my lack of age here. Uh, Skylab actually happened before I was alive. Um, my first memory of Skylab was when it was coming back, <laughs> back down to Earth, and everyone was freaked out, you know, thinking, oh, it's going to hit my house. Like, okay, you know. But that was my first memory of Skylab. So um, I think the thing we can gather the most from uh, Dwight's interview is that, you know, even though it was a very short-lived program, there's just a ton of medical data gleaned from it that we still – I think have, you know, as medical experts and as space history experts, they, they still have a lot to find out from, from it. And I think, you know, to this day, uh, one has to give credit to, uh, you know, s- still all the crew members for doing these things. So we can kind of have a heritage to look back at, you know, and to kind of glean some lessons from. So I think hopefully people will get that from, uh, Dwight's interview. And I think he does, uh, Skylab crowd. So sorry, I probably went. Overboard there? Not at all. I I agree. I mean, I also listened in on the interview. He was terrific, and I certainly learned a lot. You know, our our focus of this initial series of podcasts is on the medical aspects of uh, you know protecting our astronauts in space and looking at an historical perspective of kind of where we started with the first long duration platform in the U.S. program, 
and then progressing from there. So future podcasts are certainly going to look at some of the later programs as well. I think probably without further ado, we should get into the interview. Um, one thing that I do want to just mention to everyone, as Emily also mentioned, that we got into a lot of interesting anecdotes about Skylab. We tried to focus this first interview on sort of the medical aspects to keep it really um, the, the more, quote unquote, serious, you know, yes. part of the discussion. <laughs> However, um, there were a lot of other interesting um, discussions in the interview that we think can probably be, uh, I don't want to say an outtake podcast, but a lot of other interesting anecdotes that we certainly wanted to be able to share with uh, with our podcast listeners. So please, um, please look for a future podcast that'll, that will uh, be, I think, highly entertaining. So um, yes. <laughs> with that, um, maybe we can uh, cut to the interview um, and hope everyone enjoys it. Dwight Stephen Benecki is one of a rare breed. He is a Skylab expert. He has released the mission reports for each mission through Apogee Books and also most recently edited a volume about the Apollo-Soyuz test project. In addition, he is currently working on a film about the space station called Searching for Skylab, set to be released in 2018. We caught up with the writer and filmmaker to ask him some questions about why Skylab is still relevant today, nearly 45 years following its launch. Uh, so Dwight, uh, America's first space station, Skylab, was launched in May 1973 and was crewed through February the following year. Uh, many have all, all but forgotten Skylab's uh, contribution to human spaceflight. From the standpoint of space medicine, uh, why was Skylab a watershed moment? For the simple fact that they just checked every single thing medicine-wise on the human body that they possibly could. Um, we had the, the good fortune of talking with Joe Kerwin in June. And uh, he was just elaborating on everything that they were testing and how important it was for him as a physician to be on the first crew to go up there so that they could monitor uh, different aspects of how the body uh, deals with being in zero gravity for extended periods of time. Because up until the SL2 mission, uh, which was the first manned mission, there had not been a flight longer than... Uh, two weeks going to the moon was go to the moon land on the moon come back and there was a portion of one six g so it was never a, a a proper zero g environment that they they were looking at while they were traveling to the moon whereas skylab was the very first time where they had a continual block of living in micro well, zero gravity or microgravity uh, my next question is, uh, from reading the uh, Skylab mission reports that, uh, of course, you lovingly compiled on Apogee Books and the medical results, uh, the three crews noticed many of the same or very similar effects uh, long-duration space crews notice now on the International Space Station, uh, such as changes in skin, blood, uh, bone mass, etc., etc. Uh, do you think the, Sky the findings from Skylab can still teach us anything as we move uh, into 2018? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we were at the open day at uh, STEC in, uh, in the Netherlands uh, three weeks ago, and I specifically asked the current ESA representatives, um, is the data from Skylab still relevant today? And uh, the answer we got was, point blank, we do not have enough scientists still to analyse the data from Skylab. So they've got all this data and they have not yet, after 45 years, they still not have completely analysed all that material. Wow. 
That's incredible. Okay. That is that, awesome. my, my jaw dropped when they said that. I, I would have thought like a long time ago they went through it all and uh, they just said, no, we don't have enough people to analyze it. Yeah. I, I, adding to that, I, I think I do, I do have the, uh, the Skylab uh, Medical Investigations book, but uh, it's a huge book. But I could tell they, they probably vastly uh, truncated some of it. <laughs> you know, a lot of it was just summary. So, yeah, they, they probably, as you said, they had a lot of data from there. So that's really interesting to know. Um, you did talk about this a little bit earlier, but um, the Skylab 2 crew uh, boasted the uh, first uh, American medical doctor in space. Uh, I think the Soviets flew on a few years uh, before on their uh, first three-man mission, but... Um, the, the first Skylab crew had uh, Dr. Joseph Kerwin, a physician. Uh, I'm if, sure if this I might, not, not if I could last. interrupt, the, well, none of the Russian guys were as cool as Joe, you have to admit. <laughs> yeah, Joe is pretty awesome. <laughs> um, he's a lovely guy. Um, like I said, I'm sure they didn't fly him on that mission by accident. Um, can you tell us a bit about you know what he told you about his duties aboard the space station and how he... <laughs> paved the way for other physicians in space um and also uh can you tell us a little bit why about why he looked so uh, rough when he came back to earth back in the oh. <laughs> yes he told us all about that but unfortunately i can't uh, give any of that information away it's still top secret so unfortunately we have That's to wait fine. for the film to come <laughs> no 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 i'm only joking um joe was in the the navy and wanted to get into the space program and figured physicians would need to be the next logical step after going to the moon because they were going to go low earth orbit on Skylab or at that time the Apollo applications project and uh, it, he devoted his studies to becoming a specialist in medicine for space and that's what gave him the edge above the rest to get onto the SL2 crew now, um, I'm, I'm very happy I watched the interview with him just a couple of days ago because it's still fresh in my mind. Um, you asked about when he, he came back down to Earth and he had, I think it was, it was a strawberry drink after they splashed down. And he said, you know, he, he was feeling a little bit dehydrated and he thought, oh, this can't hurt. So he grabbed the, the strawberry drink drank it down and then about 30 seconds later he just felt queasy because they were on a little bit of rough seas and uh he, the, when they they took the crew off the onto the onto the recovery ship and he got out and he was a bit wobbly on his legs and uh he reached for when they went uh, downstairs into, into the cabin he reached for the nearest waste basket and just puked into it and of course that caused all the medical staff on the ship from nasa to suddenly freak they didn't know what was going on and it turned out that uh, uh dr berry called up his wife and said, look, we, he's got a problem. We don't know what it is. And because uh, she had just finished speaking with, with Joe about uh, 20 minutes earlier, she just went, <laughs> it's vestibular. That's <laughs> and funny. That's, that's the, Jack just, uh, not Jack, Joe just said, uh, the, he said, right on. <laughs> that is funny. Wow. Yeah, there's a, you've, I know you've, you've seen this. There's a, a semi-famous photograph of a, him on the carrier, I guess, afterwards, after recovering. He, he was not enjoying the uh, first few hours back after no. uh, microgravity. <laughs> so. it, 
It was not a fun do- And he just said, he, uh, uh, being the physician, he should have known better than to grab the drink. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. As far as emergency medicine is concerned, uh, how was Skylab equipped to handle these possible situations, if at all? Um, do you think Skylab was better or worse prepared for these kinds of events than, say, the ISS today? And also, you know, what about dental emergencies? Like, what if, God forbid, you know, somebody got, you know, a, a bad tooth up there or something? You know, what could they do? Well, we asked uh, Ed Gibson uh, about this, and he was saying that all the crews were given rudimentary training in both medicine and dentistry, that each one of the crews could take care of the other in case of an emergency. Uh, they weren't obviously qualified as a doctor apart from, from Joe Kerwin, but they, they could take precautionary measures in, a, in an emergency situation. Um, my personal opinion is Skylab was very, very well equipped for it. Uh, I, I must admit I'm not very familiar with, with how they approach things on the ISS because I've devoted now the last uh, two years to Skylab, so that's all I think and breathe. Um, <laughs> not a bad thing. Um, I think they took no chances with Skylab. They wanted to study everything. So they took very deliberate uh, measures to study every single aspect of the human body while they were up there, which comes back to this thing that they're still analysing the data today because there is just so much of it. Okay, excellent. Um, Can you tell us a little bit, there's something... uh neat that I, you know, that I've read about over the last, you know, few years and stuff, but uh, I don't think many people know that before Skylab even flew, there was a kind of a a Earth analog to Skylab. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the findings and, you know, the objectives for the uh, Skylab medical experiments uh, altitude test, the SMEET, the the one that they, uh, it was the Skylab analog they held in 1972 in which uh, I think they shoehorn Crippen, Bob Coe, and uh, Bill Thornton, Dr. Thornton, into a, like a pressure chamber for, you know, 56 days on the ground and pretended to be in space. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why'd they do that? Okay, what I can tell you is the last time I read a document from uh, Smeet was about <laughs> two and a half years ago, so I am really running on uh, on empty here when I'm <laughs> telling you whatever. Uh, no problem. It was, it was basically a test, a, a 56-day test, if I'm not mistaken, to uh, study how three crew members would cope inside a sealed environment. And... Uh, they did it in the same sort of pressure situation that would have been up on Skylab, and they were locked off from the outside world apart from closed-circuit television cameras. So essentially, they were doing a Skylab mission, but they were on Earth. They were in 1G. Um, a lot of the findings they used for that, for example, look, there is footage that I've located of them doing um, blood sampling, which there is a very famous piece of footage with... Joe Kerwin taking Pete Conrad's blood. Now, this was a direct copy of what they were doing on the Smeet, uh, uh, exper- uh, the Smeet mission. And a lot of what they, they were developing for medical experiments were first implemented in Smeet, which is the uh, abbreviated name of the Skylab Medical Experiment and Altitude Test. Am I correct with that? Yeah, you are correct. Oh, I have no paper in front of me. I'm going all by memory here. 
<laughs> no, it's okay. I had, I stumbled upon I stumbled over it myself a bit because <laughs> I'm like Skylab. Yeah. So yeah, all I know is that I've seen. I you know more than me about it. All I know is I've seen photographs from it, and um, I do recall that uh, Crippen remembered at some of it that Doctor Thornton. Some of the uh, Doctor Thornton said something like. Um, he was basically trying to not break all the equipment, but he was trying to prove people, you know, that they were wrong on certain things. So he ended up kind of, you know, pissing Crippen and Bobco. <laughs> I can imagine that. There's uh, unfortunately not as much uh, Smeets information out there as I'd like. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a possible mission report book. Who knows? Uh, you have to talk to Apogee Books about saying that there's an interest in that and they might consider it. Um what, what, one thing I can say, I, I wanted to bring this up, uh, against all expectations, the SL4 crew, the very last crew that were up there for 84 days, came down in better shape than any of the other uh, crews that went up. And that completely threw the medical analysis team down on the earth because they expected the opposite. They thought the first crew would be coming back down in the best shape, the second crew second best, and the third crew the the worst shape and they proved them all wrong and they came down with better metabolism than anybody else hmm. that's incredible what 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 do you chalk that up to uh ed gibson was saying to us they were very very regimented about making sure that on a daily basis they had a minimum of half hour uh, uh, physical exercise okay and uh again going by memory here i think they increased that to one hour i can't remember or that was a recommendation they did for for the crews for for the shuttle missions um another thing just to deviate uh, slightly sl4 was in principle the very last mission before the shuttle flew because astp although they did experiments was much more of a symbolic mission basically capping off Apollo, whereas Skylab was the last mission where they were studying every single aspect prior to the shuttle flying. And when you read the uh, the crew debrief in, in the mission reports book, uh, you will see it's a very different br- debrief to the Moonwalker crews from Pete Conrad and Alan Bean. They were very matter-of-fact, blah, 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 we did blah, 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 and you know, everything is regimented in, in the typical discipline style, whereas... The SL4 crew being all rookie and the uh, bridge crew to the next uh, uh, level of, of NASA's program, which was the shuttle, were very, very conscious about constructive criticism of what can be done to improve because they were already thinking eight years in advance when, when the shuttle would fly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were very, very uh, descriptive in every single shortcoming. When you first read it, you're like, well, guys, you know, you're being a bit harsh here, but then when you when you look at it from the point of view of how they were wanting to help the upcoming shuttle crews, uh, their their debriefs were probably the best because they were so concise. They were very very particular about the problems that they experienced being up there for 84 days. That that was way longer than any any shuttle mission ever flew for, and they figured well, we we got to put this information to good use. Exactly. All right. Well, that's fascinating to know that uh, Skylab was, you know, kind of the, I guess, the link between, you know, the Apollo, I guess, Apollo and shuttle is what I'm trying to say. That's really fascinating to know. Um, I have one more question. And um, finally, is Skylab uh, still relevant as NASA 
looks toward, you know, deep space missions nowadays. Can you explain why? Oh, very much so. Um, Skylab is very much an unsung hero because precisely it falls in the shadow of Apollo. Uh, I think the, the biggest uh, shock that I had when we interviewed the ex-Honeysuckle Creek engineers, John Saxon said to me, my neighbour asked me what I was doing today. And he said, I'm doing an interview about Skylab. And his neighbour who lives next to a fellow who was tracking Gemini uh, um, Apollo Skylab shuttle didn't know what Skylab was. Wow. You know, well, he lives next to somebody who was like a part of the team and he didn't know what Skylab was. And yet... When we, we spoke with uh, Glenn Nagel from the Tidbin Villa Visitor Centre, Glenn specifically says, you see it on the promo, Skylab changed the way we live on this planet. Now, every day when you come into your uh, home, there is a little smoke detector on the roof. That was developed specifically for Skylab. Prior to that, there were, a, a part I would imagine from military installations, nothing that was a portable version of a, of a smoke detector. That all changed with Skylab. Another interesting thing he was saying, um, the, the, the uh, militarization of medicine is a direct result of both Apollo and Skylab, but more predominantly for Skylab because they were tailored to studying the medicine like I was explaining earlier. It, there was a different league of, of taking uh, medical measurements. Mm-hmm. So that had a direct influence into how medicine was performed on Earth. Food mm-hmm. that they prepare in old people's homes is the direct result of how they prepared food for the crews on Skylab. You know, pre, pre, pre-made things that you heat up just and you're ready to eat, that all came about directly from Skylab. Wow. <laughs> it's like you don't even think of that, you know? It's like you just kind of do that and you think, well, you know, you have these things and you don't really think about where they came from or their application or what they were, you know, that's really fascinating. I honestly did not know that. That's really cool. <laughs> Emily, you probably know this about Space Station Freedom that was what the Americans were planning to send up before the ISS came about. Mm-hmm. And that would have solely an American uh, 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 space station. And I know for a fact that uh, Bill Pogue and Jerry Carr were very active in getting the data ready so that that thing could become a reality. And again, for that, they were also using Skylab data. Once again, I'd like to thank uh, Dwight Stephen uh, Bonecki for um, for uh, contributing to today's discussion about Skylab, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Wow. Well, we should add, uh, if it's okay, we can add a little a little plug for it at the end of our podcast just to make people aware of it. Yeah, what would you like me to say then? Whatever you'd like. A a shameless self-promotion of the uh, upcoming documentary. 45 years ago, NASA launched its only space station, Skylab. What happened to it? What happened to the science they did? We'll tell you all that in our film, Searching for Skylab, coming out June of 2018. No space race, just science. Hope you enjoyed today's interview.
Eleanor, Emily, and I are working to bring you a bunch of other exciting guests relating to all areas of space and all three dimensions as we look into the future with the space station freedom and other technical aspects as well. Hope to see you next time.